Good morning. It's Monday, September 18th. Beautiful weekend, beautiful day here in Park City. I'm Doug Wells, joined with my wonderful co-host, Roger Goldman. Good morning, Roger. Good morning, Doug. It's nice to have you back in the studio today. It's good to be back, and it's good to see the uh, leaves starting to change on the mountains. And we've got a great show for you this morning. Today, we're going to talk with Arthur author Rachel Swarms about her book The 272 The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church. Then we'll be talking to Nancy Vollmer. She's the Director of Communications and Marketing for the Salt Lake International Airport. We're going to be talking about Phase 2 of the new Salt Lake City Airport. We're going to end our hour by discussing Midway's Amiyali Resort with managing partner Chuck Heath. All this and more this morning on Mountain Money. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Mountain Money. On August 16, 2016, the front page of the New York Times featured a story about how Georgetown University had staved off a financial crisis in 1838 through the sale of some 272 slaves for the equivalent of $3.3 million. That story stimulated a period of introspection by Georgetown about its past role in the slave trade and what, if anything, it owed the descendants of those slaves. The article was written by journalist Rachel Swarns, who has now followed up that reporting with a new book about the real human beings that were sold in 1838, a book entitled The 272. We're very lucky to have Ms. Swarns with us this morning. Good morning and welcome to Mountain Money. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The book is really an outgrowth of your 2016 reporting. Can you share with the audience a bit about how and why you started to pursue the story and how it led you to publish the book? Yeah, so it's it's one of those, um, you know, newspaper stories, journalism stories. It, it might not have happened at all. I actually um, got uh, an email from a colleague. Um, someone had reached out to her, a Georgetown alum, um, who happened to be a CEO of a tech company, and he had a tip that he wanted to offer the New York Times an exclusive about an 1838 slave sale um, that had benefited Georgetown. And my colleague was, you know, intrigued but uncertain. Um, you know, an 1838 slave sale, was that even news, like for a newspaper? <laughs> um, but it's my great fortune that she remembered that there was someone on the staff who might know. I had written a book, American Tapestry, um, that traced Michelle Obama's enslaved ancestors, her family's journey from slavery to the White House in five generations. And she said, okay, you know, maybe she might know. So she shipped the email over to me and I took one look and, and knew immediately um, that it was a story. Yeah, and the, the story begins um, with with the, following the journey of uh, Anne Joyce's family. Can you share with the audience a bit about Joyce and how she ended up being a slave? You know, when you're writing about um, slavery, one of the things that you realize immediately is that, you know, there are folks who right away are like, oh, not interested, long ago, nothing to do with me. And so how to tell a story about slavery and Georgetown and the Catholic Church? And I figured a family, focusing on a family. And Anne Joyce is the matriarch. She was um, a black woman who arrives in the 1600s as an indentured servant. Um, and so, you know, she's got a contract, she works for a term of years, and then she'll be a free person. But that's not what happened. Um, she arrived at a time when the economy was shifting to one um, in Maryland based on, you know, indentured servants to one that was a slave labor economy. And her contract is burned and she's forced into slavery. She loses everything except her story. And she tells that to 
anyone who will listen. Um, the white people around her, her descendants, you know, our liberty was stolen. We should be free people. And that story is passed on generation after generation, and her descendants resist. Um, she has descendants who kill an overseer and are executed. She has descendants who take the Jesuits to court, sue them, file lawsuits to try to win their freedom. Um, some, only a few, um, get their freedom that way. So the rest have to figure out another way. She has a descendant, Harry Mahoney, who in the War of 1812 saves the church's money and garners a promise from the Jesuits that neither he nor his family will ever be sold. But that promise is broken in 1838 in that mass sale that I wrote about. I want to get back to tracing the story, but one of the things that struck me about the book was the incredible detail that you were able to, t to, to share about, you know, the lives that were being affected. H how did you find the source material to do all that? I mean, it, it really was incredible. You know, um, I, I really wanted very much to um, bring this, um, the story of the families to light and make them real to people. Um, you know, slavery... Um, ended up being foundational to the church. You know, priests who relied on slavery built the nation's first archdiocese, the first cathedral. Um, priests who operated and sold people established the first Catholic seminary. Um, but enslaved people have been almost completely left out of the narrative that's traditionally told about the church. Um, and so how to make these people visible and it's really hard because enslaved people, you know, by law and by practice were barred from learning how to read or write. So like letters um, and journals, which, you know, historians and genealogists rely on um, for the 19th century are really hard to come by. You're really looking at property records. Human hmm. beings were property. So you're looking at tax records, at inventories, um, sale records, those kinds of things. And again, in this instance, the family had a story um, that passed on even into the 21st century. And then, of course, the Jesuits themselves were great record keepers. So the priests at the time wrote about these um, family members, and you're kind of weaving together those those threads into a narrative. And, and let's talk more about the, the Jesuits uh, in the United States and, and how they came um, to found and to expand on, uh, expand Georgetown. Right, so one of the reasons why the family that I write about um, was, was such a, a good family to write about, the Mahoney family, is that their experience parallels the emergence um, and expansion of the Catholic Church um, in the British colonies um, and in the early United States and the church's reliance on slavery. So the Jesuits arrive in Maryland, you know, in 1634, and Maryland was established in part as a, as a refuge um, for Catholics who were persecuted um, in, um, in England. And, and they um, go about, um, you know, building literally the underpinnings of the church. They have large plantations. They are among the largest plantation um, um, and slaveholders in Maryland. Um, and they like the folks around them. And it's important to know that it wasn't just Catholics, you know, Protestants, um, other religious organizations too um, relied on slave labor. Um, they um, rely on this for their sustenance and, and to build what would become, you know, the foundations of the American Catholic Church. 
And so as we move forward, they arrive in, in, in the 1600s. Talk a little bit about how they start to build various institutions and the way in which they sort of dealt with um, slavery as a moral issue. Yes, and it's, it's very interesting and complicated. So the Catholic priests, unlike um, some white people who simply viewed enslaved people as brutes or animals, didn't, didn't view um, their, the enslaved that way. They viewed them as human beings with souls, with souls that needed to be tended, that they were ob obliged to tend and nurture at the same time as they could buy and sell their bodies. It's, it seems like a crazy contradiction to mm -hmm. us now, but Rome did not um, bar, um, you know, the buying and selling of black people. It took a long time for that to happen, well, well into the 19th century for that to happen. So there were no rules against it from Rome. Um, it was the way in which the priests um, survived, um, you know, how they supported themselves with these plantations. Um, the profits were what they used to help build the institutions um, that I described. First archdiocese, first cathedral, first Catholic institution of higher learning, Georgetown, a first seminary. Um, and it's also important to know, though, that there are voices all along the way, priests all along the way, who raise questions and concerns about this. They are lonely voices for sure, but there are questions all the time about, you know, the morality of this, particularly the morality of slave sales. Yeah, and, and two of the priests in your story are William McSherry and, and Thomas uh, Mulady. Uh, right. Tell us, tell us who these men were and what role did they play? Such a great question. Um, you know, the priests, as I said, are complicated. And when I talk about kind of the complexity, um, Thomas Mulady in particular um, is one who I talk about. He and McSherry were early presidents um, and early leaders in the Jesuit church. Um, American-born, both of them uh, were of this new generation of American-born priests who also had, knew slavery firsthand, like their parents, they had parents had um, enslaved people in their households. And Milady, um really was something of a visionary. He looked around and said, look, this Catholic church, this rural church, plantation-based church is not the future. The future is in the cities. He could see the waves of um, Irish immigrants pouring into the cities and he said that's that's where the future is and we need to be in a position um, to establish colleges you know up and down the eastern seaboard to meet the needs of these immigrants and the only way to do it is with money and the way to get the money is to sell these people, 272 men, win, women, and children, to build this vision. And, and McSherry, um, actually, Mulaney's a really interesting character. As you, as you talk about him in the book, he, he starts out as this sort of young, ambitious Georgetown student who almost immediately ends up going back to become a, a, a leader. Um, he is really actively involved in sort of, you know, the, the St. Inigo's plantation, I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, in particular. But did he have sort of, you know, questions in his own mind about morality? I, I didn't see a lot of introspection in the, in the writing that I've, that, during the book. 
he, you know, the he he was a very very ambitious, um, charismatic man, who really was focused on kind of this vision of the church. The guy who, on the other hand, raises a lot of questions and con and concerns is a a priest by the name of Joseph Carberry, who had a very very different view of the enslaved people on that plantation you mentioned, the St. Inigo's plantation that he managed. In, in the letters that he writes, he describes capacity, he describes, um, you know, faith among the enslaved. So, you know, he talks about a windmill that an enslaved man builds and marvels at the craftsmanship. He talks about the faith and, you know, just the skill that um, the black people on the plantation have and when people Jesuits complain that the plantations aren't profitable he's like well you know maybe we should do something different and he devises an experiment where black families have acres of their own to run and plant as they see fit and he shares the profits with them and an Irish priest who came to visit the plantation marveled at how well it was doing and he protested the sale of 1838 had everyone in the area praying that it wouldn't happen, white and black. And when he could see he could do no more, when the slave traders came to his plantation, he encouraged members of the Mahoney family to run. And, and talk a little bit more about the background that led to the sale of 1838. So the Jesuits were in very difficult um, financial straits and, and and are off and on, you know, from the late 1700s when Georgetown is established. But in the 1830s, um, Milady, who I mentioned, is a very influential early president. He goes on a, a building campaign at Georgetown and, and gets um, the institution very deeply in debt. Um, the Jesuits themselves, because of mismanagement um, and tough economic times, um, had been struggling and were continuing to struggle. And so you had a situation where Milady and his allies are pressing Rome saying the only way for Georgetown to survive, the only way for this vision that we have of a, of a church that is, an, that these institutions, colleges um, up and down the eastern seaboard is, is to sell these people. And you know, there were conditions. Um, Rome didn't want families split up they didn't want the money used to cover debts, but unfortunately, that's that's what happened. And and in fact, there were some splitting of families. Um, I, I believe. I mean, obviously, Mahoney ends up not being sold. Uh, I'm sorry, Harry, right. Harry Mahoney. Harry Mahoney. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay, he, he's but not his being sold. Children. Yes. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, but his children are sold. And so I talk about um, two of his daughters, Anna and Louisa. When Father Carberry urges people to run because he knows the traitors are coming, um, Louisa manages to grab her mother and um, escape into the woods. But her sister, Anna, who has two young children, um, doesn't make it and is shipped off to Louisiana. And the two sisters never see each other again. And they are just among a number of families that are torn apart that way. And being shipped to Louisiana is a big deal. Because, in fact, the nature of the slave life is very different down there. Can you flesh that out a little bit? That's right. So, you know, you have this booming economy at this time in the deep south with these cotton and sugar cane um, plantations um, and a huge um, insatiable demand for labor. 
Um, but the regime, the plantation regime down there and the work conditions um, were brutal. And people in Maryland and Virginia and the Chesapeake knew that, enslaved people knew that, and the priests knew that too. So sending people uh, down the river, deep south, um, many people viewed as, you know, not only being losing, um, you know, family and friends, but, you know, malnutrition, um, death. I mean, the, it was just a very, very difficult um, place for people to end up. Yeah, and I want to I want to circle back to something we we touched on briefly earlier, which was, you know, how the Catholic Church kind of balanced this debate. Uh, as you said, uh, the, the Jesuits, uh, recognized uh, that these people had souls uh, and they right. felt a duty to to nurture their souls um, right but yet you know they were they were practicing slave owners and and how did yeah. they balance can you can you talk more about that internal debate that they must have been having you know in the 1830s um, when they're weighing the sale you know there are folks for and against and people ask that question you know how can we sell these people um, as I mentioned you know Father Carberry goes to Georgetown and 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 raises questions and concerns um, but again Rome um, did not bar um, the buying and selling of people um, the Catholics uh, you know Catholics um, face discrimination in Maryland too and there was some sense of wanting to be aligned um, with. Um, this was particularly in the during the uh, um, the when they were in the British colonies, right? When Maryland was a British colony, but they wanted to align themselves with um, with you know society, um, established society. There's also you know abolitionists. Um, many of them were Protestant. There were anti-Catholic strains. Um, in some of the abolitionist movement, they point to that. Um, so all of those things, but I think at, at, at bottom, it, it, it was the economy and, and Rome did not bar it. And, and so that's, you know, that's what the situation was. I, I do like to say, and I think it's important to note that, you know, this is a story of heartbreak for sure, but it's also a story of, you know, family and faith and love and, 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 and survival and resilience. And I think that's an important thing to, to get across to your listeners. It's also a story about money and finance. They're, 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 they're oh, for sure. And, and, <laughs> and you get to the point where, where the sale happens and you tell the story about a, I believe it's a Louisiana congressman who basically buys a number of these slaves with debt and has trouble paying it back. Can you talk about that a little bit? So yeah, the money side is such a fascinating thing because you know it's, it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around it, but People are property. So what does that mean? It means that they, you know, you can buy enslaved people on an installment plan, which is what they did. You can get loans from the bank to help cover that. You can use enslaved people as collateral. Um, all of that happens. Um, you know, and that's in fact what this Louisiana congressman does, you know, and you know, he um has struggles to kind of pay off um, he's paying the Jesuits in installments and, and has trouble making the payments one of the things that I discovered was that um, 
you know, Georgetown um, had often um, thought that, you know, because of the financial problems of the buyers, that they never received the full payment amount. Um, but it turns out um, the ledger records told a different story that, you know, money kind of trickled in through the 1860s. Um, and they ended up with about $4.5 million in today's dollars from that sale. So the story is complicated on several fronts, right? But I want to get, I want to bring that story, I want the story after the story. So Roger talked in, in the open when he introduced you, Rachel, um, that it stimulated a period of introspection by the Georgetown community uh, and the nation at large. Tell us a little bit about that. What was the impact of that? What, as you look back, what do you think the impact has been of that story being told? So, you know, Georgetown, even before my story ran, Georgetown had started a process where they were. They had established a working group to kind of examine their history and figure out what to do. I think that story, though, in 2016 um, did something um, that probably none of us expected <laughs> what would come of it. In addition to that story, we ran um, a companion piece, a sidebar. We knew at the time there were only about a handful of descendants who had been identified and we knew there would be more. And so we asked people, um, are you tied to this sale? We um, posted um, a link to the passenger list of a ship that carried many of these people to Louisiana. It had first and last names of the enslaved passengers on board. And we asked people, do you know the names? Um, are these your family names? Um, and scores of people uh, wrote back to us. Um, and since then, more than 6,000 descendants have been identified. Um, these descendants have, you know, raged and wept, and then they organized, and they really pressed um, Georgetown and um, the Jesuits to, to make amends, to, to take some steps to address this history. And that process, I take it, is still going on? It's still going on. One of the things I mentioned earlier, which was kind of a surprise, is that, you know, faith ended up being a big thing for these families, even though they had been betrayed by the church. Many of them remained Catholic and remain Catholic to this day. Some of the sacramental records ended up being really important, you know, in terms of tracing the lives of these people. Um, and so I talk about the descendants and, and um, the descendants of the two sisters. And, um, you know, the institutions have taken a number of steps. Georgetown and the Jesuits have apologized for this history. Georgetown has set up a, a fund. They call it a reconciliation fund where they're raising $400,000 a year to support projects um, that benefit descendant communities. And the Jesuits have partnered with a group of descendants to create a foundation and have pledged to raise $100 million um, to benefit racial reconciliation projects and um, projects that benefit descendants. It's the largest effort by the Roman Catholic Church to address this history. We've been talking with, to Rachel Swarns about her fascinating book, The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church. Rachel, thanks for spending time with us. We'll be right back after this. On September 15, 2020, the new Salt Lake City Airport opened. We were all waiting for it. It was a crazy time, and it was nice to have some, some good news out there. Uh, the Salt Lake City Airport is the first new hub airport 
built in the United States in the 21st century. The airport's currently building phase two of the new Salt Lake City with more shops, restaurants to enjoy, and more gates and hopefully more destinations. Nancy Vollmer is the Director of Communications and Marketing for the Salt Lake International Airport. She's going to join us and talk about the continued expansion of the facility. Nancy has ties to the Park City community. Her great-grandfather was a Park City miner, and her great-grandmother operated a boarding house on Main Street. Nancy, welcome back to Park City, and thank you for joining us on Mound Money. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. I should say that uh, you're on the phone. I said welcome to Park City, but that's in the, <laughs> in the virtual sense, of course. Uh, that's right. Let's, and, and let's talk about this, this gem in the, in the physical world that we have here, which is uh, the new Salt Lake City Airport. Uh, and everybody knows about phase one. Um, but let's start there with the grounding. What, what, how has it been received, both you know, from a pro standpoint, but then also any concerns with phase one? You know, overall, we have received some very positive feedback about the new SLC. In fact, the number one comment that we hear is that your airport is beautiful. And I think that really is because we have these beautiful large-scale art installations, such as the canyons and the falls. And they were actually um, intentional. We, act, we started um, early on and asked um, the public what they wanted to see in their new airport. And they said they wanted to see the beauty of Utah represented. And I think those large-scale art installations has really helped with that. And from an operations perspective, the new airport design is more efficient than the previous airport. And that's because the previous airport had that pier configuration where only one aircraft could move in and out at a time at the gates. And this new parallel uh, configuration means that there are more aircraft that can move in and out. So um, we've been recognized uh, as being one of the most on-time airports in the U.S. and worldwide. In fact, um, we ranked third worldwide for on-time departures um, behind airports in Tokyo and India and then uh, about 20th busiest airport in the U.S. So, um, you know, that's, that's some really um, some good rankings that we're very proud of. You know, an airport has at least two major constituencies, the airlines themselves and the passengers. And clearly the new design has been very, very helpful to the, to the airlines as, because, as you mentioned, it allows great in and out egress, ingress and egress. But the biggest complaint I've heard about the airport, of course, is that it takes a heck of a long time to get to a B gate when you arrive at the airport. Talk to us a little bit about what did the design initially contemplate with respect to that, and are there sort of future changes that will address it? Sure. So we actually started uh, designing this new airport in the late 1990s. We have a uh, plan, our master plan, that was put together that pretty much has the same design because this is the way airports are being designed these days. Um, it's important to note that this design is more efficient from a sustainability perspective. Um, and we actually achieved LEED Gold certification, which is the ultimate green building seal of approval because of this design and some other things we've done for sustainability. But I think that um, as far as the passenger is concerned, that it seems a little bit like there is a long walk. And I, I understand that because we had to add a hard stand operation. And when I say hard stand operation, I mean if you are going to take a regional jet, let's say to Reno or to Boise or to St. George, you've had to go to the B gates and then board a shuttle to your aircraft. 
and same thing upon return. And that was a temporary fix after um, COVID because when COVID hit, um, our passengers obviously declined substantially. And so we looked at that from the construction standpoint and said, okay, instead of continuing to operate some gates off of the old airport, let's demolish this old airport all at once. It will save time and it will save money. But then as passenger traffic started to increase, uh, we needed to add some gates, if you will, and so we had the hard stand operation put in place. Um, but that's going to change as we continue to open new gates. So, for example, as you mentioned, we're building Phase 2, and we started opening up gates on Phase 2, which is basically the east end of Concourse A. And we opened the first five gates in May. We opened another four gates in August, and then we'll open the final 13 gates on October 31st and as those gates open the hard stand will go away and so it will be a better customer experience so right now everybody who goes through the security screening checkpoint um, they come out of that and for a long time everyone went to the left and that was to go down to the A gates or to go to the tunnel which took passengers over to the B gates. When we opened up some gates on Concourse A East, now passengers can also turn right. And there'll be more passengers doing that as we open up more gates. And then next year, in fall of 2024, when we open up Phase 3, we'll open up the new Central Tunnel. And that will cut the walk to Concourse B. Um, that will cut that walk extensively because we'll now have that permanent tunnel in place. And... Um, a lot of people will ask me, they'll say, you know, well, why did you not build that tunnel before you opened the airport? And it was just simply we couldn't because the former airport was there. So we had to tear down the old airport before we could start building that tunnel. So for those of us who are visually impaired, I'm just trying to visualize what's going to happen. <laughs> I, I get uh, right now, if I'm going to go to a B gate, even not the hard stand B gate, but sort of a, a far B gate, um, I walk all the way, I walk to the uh, underpass and then I, I can use some people movers, and then I do more people movers till I get to my gate. How will the configuration change? In other words, why, why will so, it be faster, or will it be? Okay, so it depends on which gate you're going to, quite frankly. But mm -hmm. what will happen is that as you exit security um, next fall, when we open up that tunnel, you will have the opportunity of, uh, when you come through security, you'll either turn left, you'll turn right, or you'll go straight and you'll take an escalator down to the tunnel over to the B gate. So that, that will shorten your walk, sure. especially if you're going to those gates right there. Now, if you're, you know, it, it, there's no doubt it's gonna be, we built a bigger airport. There's no doubt about that. So it is um, bigger to <laughs> navigate, um, but we, uh, we understand that it, it can be challenging for different people. And so we are looking at ways to help ameliorate that, you know, with doing some, we'll be experimenting with some um, electric carts, which we haven't been able to use to this point because it is so crowded in um, the Concourse A West area. But um, we're looking at ways that we can make the, the journey for our passengers um, more pleasant. So before I ask my question, I have to share my favorite thing when I'm walking to the B gate is, is some clever marketing person, Nancy, it might have been your idea, came up with this idea of, you know, we're helping you get your 10,000 steps in for the day. And it always makes me chuckle and it makes the walk a little more pleasant knowing that. So kudos to whoever came up with that. Yeah, 
Um, that was something that, that my office did, and I and I tell you, and we don't mean to offend anyone, but we are trying to make light of the fact and recognize that we know that it is a longer walk, and um, it will be changing. Great. Okay, on a more serious note, uh, phase two, uh, people here in Park City are excited because there's a, a couple Park City establishments that are going to be in phase two, uh, which includes Hugo's Coffee and then Vessel Kitchen. Um, and yeah. I'm just, I've always wondered when I walk through, you know, like you have Bruegel's, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Bruegel's ba uh, Waffles, uh, the Belgian... Bruch, Bruch. Yes. thank you. Uh, waffles, which are absolutely delicious. They're not a Park City organization. But I was pleasantly surprised to see them there. What is the process that companies go through to get selected to be at the airport? Yeah, that's a good question. So I don't know if everyone realizes that the airport is a department of Salt Lake City. And so we follow the city's procurement process. So when we're looking to select a new business, whether it's a restaurant, a shop, you know, something else, we issue a request for proposal. And that includes specifications on the types of new restaurants and shops that we're seeking. So the next opportunity for businesses to submit will be coming up for phase four. And that will be issued on the streets, I believe, this fall. And so we have been holding some orientation workshops virtually basically to let people know who are interested what it takes to operate at the airport because it is very different than it is than just operating out on the street and if anyone is interested we actually have a session this afternoon and a few others coming up in the, the next few weeks that um, people can learn about if they go to slcairport.com and, and it's under our link doing business with the airport so um, there's more opportunities to come, and that's the process that we go through. But, of course, we are looking for certain types of businesses, too, because we hear back from our passengers that they want to, you know, find they, – they want to know about coffee shops. They want to have the local flavor. They want to – there's always the passengers who want to have the national brands. They don't want to try the locals. They're more comfortable with those national brands. So we try to have a really good mix to please all of our passengers. And the one thing I, I'm not sure everyone is aware of is that Salt Lake City Airport offers street pricing. And that's something that's new with this new airport. And what that means is that we require our concessions um, to price their products and their food the same as the prices are off airport. And so that's something that's been very popular with our passengers. Now you mentioned that it's, it's, it's not the same as running a business on the street. I, I will confess to you that as I walk through the airport and look at the stores, I have to wonder, how do they get stuff in there? In other words, you know, the, the delivery process, you know, be, because of the security yeah. surrounding an airport, tell us a little bit about what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, so we actually, it's really interesting. Um, there's a lot that goes into operating an airport. It's almost like you're operating a small city. And um, there's a process with a new airport that's new, actually, and there's a central um, distribution area. All products go to that area. They're screened. And then they're taken on um, trucks and they're delivered to the airport. And then so whether it's, you know, um, food items or um, some product, um, those are all delivered through this central screening um, area. And so it's very efficient. And with the former airport, we actually had individual trucks that would come and deliver, you know, to restaurants and shops. And that created a lot of traffic on the airfield. So it really was not... Um, the best system, but we work with a company called Bradford Logistics, and they're the ones who operate the screening 
and distribution facility. And are there like loading docks behind the f facilities? You know, because yes, obviously yes. you don't really see, you, you know, to the public never see stuff getting delivered. Yeah, you're right. No, there's there's um, loading docks, there's storage areas, there's elevators, there's, um, you know, there's everything that would go into creating a shop or a restaurant off the street is, will be similar at the airport, but it's on a much smaller scale in some instances. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really quite the process to watch a new airport being built because of all of that that goes into building an airport. But um, we've tried to really use the most uh, current and most updated um, construction procedures for those um, various shops and restaurants to make it more efficient for our tenants. Yeah, it's a ton of work. And, you know, one of the fascinating things over the last 18 months has been watching that new tunnel get built. When you first go in, there's this beautiful all-glass wall with the nice comfy chairs. You leave security, turn right, watching uh, that. And as you said, it's incredibly complex. Another complex part that most passengers are impacted by the delivery of is is their bags uh, and I actually uh, was fortunate I was able to take a tour of the facility uh, before it opened and saw the baggage handling uh, and the person showing it to me was quite proud of it and uh, my un my undergrads in engineering and I thought this is really complex I hope it works out now I don't travel with checked bags but for those that do How's that? How's the baggage handling system working, turning out? Well, you know, it's interesting because the airport, when we did start building phase one, it was around that baggage facility. And there was a big hole in the ground, and that all was for the baggage screening area. And, um, you know, it's something that we are continually making refinements to. Uh, one change that we had made for the new airport is to have um, a system that could handle, you know, large items such as skis and bikes you know, a lot of people travel here to do some mountain biking or skiing golf clubs and um, there's a whole process that's called baggage hygiene where we had to train those who work um, on the front lines to make sure that they're loading those those bags properly to get into this conveyor system but um, the new central tunnel that's, that's opening in the fall of 2024 actually has a baggage conveyor system as well. And that's going to be transporting bags between concourses A and B. So right now what we're doing is we're using those tugs that the airlines have to transport the bags if their bags are going to be. So once the tunnel opens, the bags will be transported through that tunnel. And that will definitely be more efficient. Um, another thing that's happening is that Delta ha and the airport have been working on an early baggage storage system. So for passengers who arrive to the airport early, they'll be able to store their bags um, earlier than just uh, typically the two hours prior to arriving. So that will be more convenient for them as well. There's always a certain, it strikes me that there's a certain field of dreams element to building an airport like that, which is if we build it, they will come. And I guess my question is, what are your ambitions in terms of the future of the airport as sort of becoming a larger hub, both domestically and internationally? Well, that's the one thing I really like to point out. You know, if it wasn't for Delta having their fourth largest hub here, um, you know, our airport would be much smaller and the walks would be much smaller too. However, <laughs> Passengers would not be getting um, that access within one stop to the world. And um, to me, it's really um, amazing when you stop to think about it that, you know, you can get on a plane and access any destination really in the world. And um, 
we actually have an air service development department and that's what they work on we work on talking to the airlines that are currently existing in salt lake city about new service um, for example with delta they are um, they've already announced and just announced last week some of the routes that will be returning to salt lake city that were um, suspended because of the pandemic um, and so we also are always working on new international air service. So the new airport has more international gates, and that allows us to recruit more international service. And so when we opened, we were able to shortly afterwards, it was in May of last year that we opened a new route and a new airline called Discover. It was Eurowings Discover. Now they've changed their branding just to Discover to offer nonstop service from Frankfurt, Germany. We're under discussions with other airlines and with Delta on adding new service. And I don't think it's a surprise to anyone um, because it's something that Ed Bastian had announced a few years ago before the pandemic that Delta has the intent to serve uh, Seoul, Korea nonstop. And so having that flight between Salt Lake City and the Incheon Airport, I think would be a tremendous boost to accessing Asia. So, um, but, so that's on an international scale. And if you look on the domestic scale, um, we're always looking at new airlines. You know, more competition helps with um, different airline rates. So in May of last year, we also announced that Spirit Airlines was coming to town. And so that's really helped to, I think, uh, add to the competition, if you will. And so we have um, some new service that they're providing to different markets. So it's something that we're continually looking at and exploring. And we work very closely with our partner, what we call our partner agencies, for example, Visit Park City, visit Salt Lake, the Utah Office of Tourism, um, Ski Utah to find out which markets they're looking at targeting and how we can better serve those markets. Well, Nancy, we're going to have to leave it there. Today we talked about Phase 2. We talked about Phase 3. You mentioned Phase 4. You've been, you've been on our show several times. We'll have you back in the future. We'll talk about Phase 4 and I'm sure over time, phase six, seven, eight, nine, and maybe even <laughs> phase 10. So we've been speaking with Nancy Vollmer uh, with the new Salt Lake City Airport. Nancy, thank you again for joining us once more on Mountain Money. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been my pleasure. And stay tuned. Mountain Money will be right back. Located in beautiful Midway, Utah, Amayali Resort offers its, its owners and guests world-class amenities as well as access to the 50,000-square-foot well-being center developed with Deepak Chopra and the Chopra Foundation. It will feature the Amayala's natural healing mineral thermal springs and Chopra-inspired well-being programs. Amamilia um, Resort and manager and partner is here, Chuck Keith. Chuck, thank you for joining us. And even though you told me how to pronounce the name of your resort ahead of time, I got it right once and I messed it up twice. Sorry. That's okay. Okay. So, so tell us what the envision is of the, the vision is of, of the property for the residents and the structures. What's the experience? There? Well, the vision is uh, combining um, uh, hot springs, uh, water, uh, in, in along with well-being uh, through the Chopra Group and in a location that's literally seven minutes from the new Deer Valley back, back door. So it's going to provide something that really nobody else has seen here in Utah or probably in the U.S. We've traveled can, throughout. 
can I get you to talk to what is Chopra? I've heard of it. I know it's kind of, I think yoga, I think meditation, but I don't know. Deepak Chopra is probably the world wellness guru. Uh, he's written 90 some books. He's been on Oprah probably a hundred times. They've partnered on a bunch of things. He's really involved in, in really wellness and integrative medicine. Uh, and what he has done, one of his books, in fact, one of his bestsellers, really integrated the seven pillars of well-being. And so that is what we're going to follow in, in terms of our, our wellness center itself. Okay, so t let's talk a little bit about the physical layout of the, of the facility. Uh, I'm, I assume there'll be a number of buildings. Tell us a little about what some of the buildings will be. Yeah, it comes in a couple phases. Uh, our first phase, which we've already started, uh, all the infrastructure is going in right now, and two of the buildings are coming out of the ground, will be what we call our residential phase. And that is we'll have uh, basically... Uh, 2,750 square foot residences, four bedroom, four and a half baths, two car garage, roof observation deck, and those will be for families. In, in addition, we'll be providing uh, a pool, we'll be providing soaking pools, pickleball courts, uh, clubhouse, uh, kids center, those types of amenities for that first phase alone. Uh, the second phase then comes, in, which is much bigger, which will start in the spring, and that will be a, uh, we have 50,000 square feet planned right now for the well-being center, uh, an event center, uh, a restaurant, roof deck, pool, uh, those types of things. And then in addition to that, we'll have 80 high-end hotel rooms and 23 uh, cottages, as we're calling, which are going to be 1,600 square foot, uh, two-bedroom lock-off hotel rooms. So very high-end scale from the, from the hospitality side. And is the vision that these would be full-time residences or more likely like some of the other resorts in town, kind of second homes that people come to for a period of time, but their full-time life is somewhere else? We, we believe these will be mainly second homes correct. Uh, the first phase, what we're doing is we're allowing people to buy either a piece of it, uh, one-eighth share, all the way up to full ownership. So uh, again, as we all know here in this community, uh, most of our second homeowners aren't here all year. In fact, I think the national average is about four weeks of usage a year for your second home. Uh, seems a little wasteful, seems a little hard to justify, etc. So we're going to allow, you know, everything from a low end of one-eighth share, which is six weeks a year, all the way up to full ownership in that first phase. Uh, in the second phase, we'll offer, we'll offer the same type of thing for the cottages. Hotel rooms will be in nightly rentals. And have you started marketing the, this first phase at this point? We have started uh, about a month ago. We, we, we introduced it, uh, but we don't have any models at this point in time to show. So we've basically been kind of doing the friends and family program in terms of marketing and have done real well. We've, we've sold, I think, 16 at this point in time already. So it's, it's gone well. It's been received well. It's, it's unique because we have the water and, and the thermal waters have been proven there. We, uh, we have uh, kind of anecdotal evidence of late 1800s that was being used. Uh, in the early 1900s, there was actually a spa there called Mountain Spa with two A's. We're still trying to figure out why. <laughs> uh, but we had Roy Rogers and a bunch of different Hollywood celebrities that we, would come. Uh, so it's been a real, you know, there's a lot of real rich history with that. And so the water has been tested. We have 104 degree artesian water uh, very close to the top. So we'll be using that uh, because it does really have healing properties. In conjunction, obviously working with the Chopra organization just elevated the project tremendously because of, of his, uh, basically his teachings and his philosophies and his, I guess, star power as well. Uh, he, he has a really 
huge following of people uh, who are interested in that kind of that well-being side of, of health. So talk to us about the relationship with Chopra. How did, how did you get connected? What was that like? Are there other inspired resorts like this around the, the country? There's a foundation. What is that role? Kind of give us that story. Well, well first of all, I, I, I kind of call it divine intervention. Uh, <laughs> um, it literally happened by chance uh, from a, a simple invitation working with, a, with a, actually with a with a, a military group and, and met his COO and was introduced to Deepak and we so we kind of presented our our philosophy on our project and uh, he's in a, in, a, in a stage of his life right now he kind of entered what he calls his fourth border where he really wants to do more research and, and his, his ultimate goal is to help a billion people become healthier happier and joyful and our, uh, our philosophy met with his really well in terms of we really believe that we need to provide places where people can come and not not just get a massage and your nails done like every other spa and, and especially in in all the ski resort towns but some place where you can actually really come and and and, and it's more of a transformative uh, type of arrangement where you can come in and we will tailor make uh, programs around your needs and so uh, everything from sleeping to nutrition to uh, maybe uh, Arveda medicine, uh, whatever that may be, we can, we'll be able to accommodate that. So it really becomes a true well-being center versus just a spa. So tell us a little bit about what's going to be in the 50,000-foot wellness center. What kinds of facilities will be in that when it's built? Well, we'll have some of the typical uh, treatment rooms for massage, etc. We'll also have a complete water circuit, which is are becoming quite uh, uh, interested out there in the marketplace where there's there's uh, cold plunges, hot plunges, misters, steam rooms, saunas, etc. Uh, we'll then provide, we'll have a haman in the, build, in, in the facility as well and some specialty spa areas and, and then a, just an enormous outdoor pool uh, with, with, with this, this healing water in it. Uh, we've traveled to Europe and have seen a number of spots that uh, they do this really well at. Uh, we haven't done it real well in the U.S. yet, and we're, we're trying to uh, bring a little bit of Europe here in terms of how they really uh, provide wellness, especially using water. So you've talked about um, the facilities. Talk about the people and the training, because this is not, as you said, a normal spa. How are you going get to get them up the learning curve? Well, one, we're going to in, 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 induce them to the to the philosophy, but then have them live the philosophy, or we'll hire people who already live the philosophy. One thing we believe we're, we're real lucky at here in this marketplace is we have a lot of people who, who are into meditation, who are into yoga, who are into he well health and wellness. Uh, we have a super healthy you know clientele in this marketplace, and so we already have a lot of those people. In fact, we've been having people call us for the last two years saying. We'd love to work there. We want to be there. We're into, we're into yoga. We're into meditation. We're into, you know, these types of things. And uh, so we think that we're going to be finding associates, not employees. Okay. We've been talking about the Amayali Resort, um, which uh, is already sort of doing pre-sales, I take it. We are, yes. Okay. So, Chuck Heath, thanks for joining us. We'll be right back after this. We started the hour by talking to Rachel Swarns about her new book, The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church. We then got to chat with Nancy Vollmer about the Salt Lake City Airport and got some answers to those questions about how are you still going to have those very long walks. And we just finished up with Chuck Heath talking about the Amiyali Resort. 
Next week on Mountain Money, we've got a really interesting show coming up. We're going to talk to Robert Bruno about the four-day week work week. We're also going to talk with Cindy Rogers-Tetro about the Utah Women's Tech Council. And we'll be talking to Ma Megan James about Prime 4. You've been spending your hour listening to Mountain Money here on KPCW Park City, 93.3.